are in part two of our series, Philippians. Philippians. And we're going through the book of Philippians in the New Testament. Last week, we looked at chapter one, and we're going verse by verse by verse. If you missed last week, I encourage you to go back and have a listen. You can even watch it on YouTube. It, it's, uh, it's just, it's, it was a great first chapter. So now we're moving into chapter two. And I, I was... Um, I was thinking about um, my kids uh, just recently. In fact, even last night I was with, with a couple. We were talking about how our kids get older, and sometimes um, they don't want to hang out with us as they used to. Anybody got kids like that? I don't know why they don't want to hang out with us. Like, oh, we're so cool. Anyway, uh, but when me and Porto, when we started um, uh, ministry, and we'll be traveling and, and being invited to different places, and so we'll leave our children behind, and, and um, especially when your ch- kids are, are young, and anybody miss their kids when you, when you travel away? Oh man, I miss them dearly, and, and so I would ring them up, and um, I would ring them up, because Porter wouldn't ring them, I would ring them up, and, and then, uh, and then uh, one of the months, oh, it's dad, oh, dad's on the phone, and yeah, I love you, yeah, I'll miss you, I love you too, go get your sister, go get your brother, and they let them know, oh, dad's on the phone, they all run to the phone, and all this, but what I noticed over the years, <laughs> as the children got older, that I would ring, and ring, and ring. I go, oh, obviously their phone's charging somewhere. I'll ring one of the other children. I'll ring and ring. Then I'll ring one of the other children. And I was thinking, no one's answering their phones. And, and because, you know, as the a, as a ch- children got older, they were no longer running to their phones because they were like, oh, it's only mom and dad. Ah, oh, meh. And so now when we travel, we no longer ring them because we're like, meh. If you're looking for a subtitle for this message, it is meh. <laughs> no, actually, here's the thing. We have to be careful that what we once held as sacred hasn't become ordinary. Wow. Come on. And, and I, I, I was thinking about this, and I realized that, oh, no, I, I do not want my relationship with my children to become ordinary. It's got to stay sacred. We have to be careful that what we once held sacred has not become ordinary. Has your marriage become ordinary? What's your relationship with one another? What's, if, if you've got adult children, have your relationship with them become ordinary? Because we have to be careful that what we once held as sacred has not become ordinary. Is your relationship with God, has that become ordinary? Has your faith become ordinary? We've got to be careful. So if you're looking for a subtitle for my message, it is don't lose what is sacred. Don't lose what is sacred. A.K.A. meh. <laughs> Don't lose what is sacred. That's why the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi. And last week, just going briefly over, so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to a church that he planted around 50 A.D. And the church of Philippi is located in northeastern of modern-day Greece today. It was a Roman settlement where they spoke Latin. So they were speaking Latin, in a, in a, in a, which is quite interesting when, when everyone was speaking Greek, that here we have in Philippi, everybody speaking Latin because it was a Roman colony right there in the northeastern part of Greece. And Apostle Paul plants this church in Philippi, and he's writing to them in a prison. And you've got to understand something. When you read the book of, the book of Philippians, it's a book full of joy. It overflows of joy, which is crazy considering he wrote it in a hole in a prison. He writes the most joyful letter from one of the most sorrowful places that we could ever find or think we'll find ourselves in. 
but yet it's full of joy. It overflows with joy, and he writes this letter, and he's encouraging them to make sure that what they hold as sacred does not become ordinary. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to, to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. And this is what it says. This is Apostle Paul. He's writing to them. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And all that we do, let us not lose sight of unity being in unity with one another, being in unity with your children, being in unity with your husband, your wife, or, or your significant other, Let's continue, or with your church family, let's continue to fight for unity and being, being one. You know, am I here to build my kingdom, or am I here to build the kingdom? We have to be careful that what we once held as sacred has not become ordinary. Okay, now we're going to press pause here, and we're going to jump to verse 12. We're just going to jump ahead to verse 12. We're going to come back, but I'll tell you why after we talk about what I'm going to talk about. Here we go. Let's jump ahead to verse 12. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, where is he? He's in prison. Now that I'm away, it is even more important, work hard to show the results of your salvation. So he's writing back to the church in Philippi. Come on. Now that I'm away from you, work hard. Come on, to show the results of your salvation. I'm obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desires and the power to do what pleases Him. See, I love this. Paul says, work hard to show your salvation. Then he says, God is working in you. So, so what is it? Are we working it? Are we working out our salvation? Or is He working in us? And it's yes, yes to both. It's about partnering with God, that God is working in you. He never stops working in you, even though we stop working. Like we might, we might turn our backs on God, but God never turns his back on you. And he's encouraging you to work out your salvation and partner with God, because God is always working on your behalf. We are never alone. So the Apostle Paul, he's writing back to the church in Philippi, and he's saying to him, hey, you know, you guys, when I was with you guys, you guys were awesome. You guys were slaying it. You guys, man, you guys were doing amazing things. You guys were doing great. But now that I'm gone, now that I'm away from you, it is even more important that you keep growing and you keep obeying God's way. That's what spiritual growth is all about. Because here's the, here's the thing. If the only time you are growing spiritually is on a Sunday, then there's something wrong with your spiritual growth. Because your, your spiritual growth with God is meant to grow daily. But if we're only finding the only time I grow spiritually is on a Sunday, man, there's something wrong with my spiritual growth. What's going on? See, I believe that church services can be the catalyst for you to want to change. You come along to church on a Sunday, and all of a sudden, God just, just identifies something in your life, and, and it's like a catalyst to want to change. See, but it may be great, but it will only be good as long as you do something with it. Because we all want to change, and, there's a, and it's a catalyst change. But, it, but if we leave it and do nothing with it, then we're still the same. We don't grow. What we need to do is take this catalyst for change from a Sunday 
and we need to put into some relational environment like a connect group, like a small group, and begin to work this out. Like, man, God touched me on Sunday. Uh, there's this catalyst. I need a change, and we need to get, get with people that we trust. This is why we run connect groups. That's why we have all these small groups, because we learn to take the mask off, because we're struggling with issues. And if I've got my mask on, you know, hey, look, everything's going great, but I'm struggling right behind, and I'm dying right now. But when we get into small groups, and we begin to journey and do life together with one another, we learn to take the mask off. And, and, and when we do that in a small group, then all of a sudden we can be to work out this catalyst for change. How do we work this thing out? And it's best done there, and that's when we begin to grow, and we learn to get real with one another. We learn to take the, the mask. I mean, I'm tired of being fake. We, we, it's so easy for us to be fake. We wonder, how's things going? You rock up the church on a Sunday, you just finished grilling the kids. <laughs> be quiet, man, you guys, go, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. You drive to church, and you get out, oh, bless you, hi, bless you, guys. Bless you, brother, bless you, sister, how was you? Oh, oh, it was so sacred. My... my Oh, it's heavenly. Anybody been there before? No. Right? Come on. Come on. <laughs> Come on. It's time to walk into your potential. If you need prayer after this, we've got a prayer team. Just want to stand with you, pray for you. Here we go. Verse 14. Do everything without complaining and arguing. That one verse alone, oh my goodness. How would the lives of churches be, how would it be revolutionized if Christians lived by this? If we lived without complaining and arguing. Imagine how you, what your, your family life would be like with your children, with yourself. One of the um, complaints of Porto is that I complain too much. <laughs> That's kind of, it's interesting, like, how do we, can you imagine what we like if we begin to live life without complaining and arguing? And he goes on, do, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked, crooked, not crooked, crooked and perverse people. See, Paul isn't saying, he's not saying, do all these things so that you can be perfect before God, so that you can earn salvation. It's not about earning salvation. But what he's saying is that people need to see the light in the darkness. Are you that shining light in your workplace? Are you that shining light within your families? Are you that shining light within your place of education? Or does your life look no different than anybody else? You need to be that shining light. Be the light on a crooked and twisted generation. And if you do, God will use that. Verse 16. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I'll be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service and offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. What gave Paul so much joy? What gave Paul so much joy, despite being in prison, despite being in a hole, despite being, being in, 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 a, in a time of his life with his sorrow and trouble around him? What gave the apostle Paul so much joy? And the key was his relationship with Jesus. His relationship with Jesus as he worked hard to make sure that it never became ordinary. 
nor did he want to see the church in Philippi for their relationship with Christ to become ordinary. Has your relationship with Jesus become ordinary? Verse 19. If the Lord Jesus is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then he can cheer up by cheer me up by telling me how you're getting along. Because Paul is always fighting for unity, but getting along with one another. I have no one else like Timothy who generally cares about your welfare. Isn't it amazing when you have someone who actually genuinely cares? Not to say, hey, how was your day? But you don't really, you don't really want to know. Hey, how, how are you? Oh, it's terrible. Oh, that's good. Bye. <laughs> who generally cares about your welfare. Verse 21. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. But you know how Timothy has proved himself like a son with his father. He has served with me in preaching the good news. I hope to send to him to you soon as I find out what is going to happen to me here. And I have confidence from the Lord that I myself will come to see you soon. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul doesn't say that Timothy was a wonderful teacher. Or he's this mighty holy man. He's this sacred, he's holier than thou. But what does he say? He says to Timothy, who genuinely cares about you. This shows something about leadership. And let me say something. You're leading somewhere. You don't have to be on a stage to be leading people. You'll be leading people within your family. You're leading your family. You'll be in your workplace. If you're that shining light, you're leading through. And let me tell you something. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Verse 25. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. What a cool name. Everybody say Epaphroditus. You should, anyone having a baby soon? You should name your son that. Epaphroditus. Anyway. I thought I'd just mention that. He is a true brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, and he was your messenger to help me in my need. So they sent Epaphroditus to the Apostle Paul to help him. I am sending him because he has been longing to see you, and he, has, and he was very distressed that you heard that he was ill. And he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died. Back in those days, drinking water, you can die. You get a cut on your finger, you can die. But God had mercy on him and also on me, which is really interesting because it was, you're safer to drink alcohol than you were water. <laughs> Don't get any ideas, guys. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Whack back then. But God had mercy on him and also on me so that I will not have one sorrow after another. So I am all the more anxious to send him back to you, for I know you'll be glad to see him and then, then when then I will not be so worried about you. Welcome him in the Lord's love with great joy and give him the honor that people like him deserve. Honor him. For he risked his life for the work of Christ and he was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. See, so they sent Epaphroditus and he almost died. So was that a failure? Imagine the embarrassment of sending a highly expected gift only for it to arrive broken and spoiled. I love what Paul does. Rather than complaining, this guy you sent me? Oh my gosh, he's supposed to be helping me. Now I'm trying to save his life. What a burden he is. Oh my goodness, what kind of help? He doesn't say that at all. Instead of complaining, what does Paul do? He gave some of his highest praise to Epaphroditus. 
Paul chose to honor him. And in doing so, the people of Philippi said, look, this is how you honor one another. Have you been disappointed by someone because they didn't turn out as you expected them to? Someone's joined your team. And you thought, man, they're awesome. They come up with all these great things. But they didn't turn out as they expected. In fact, now you're frustrated with them. Now you think, I wish they never joined our team. Have you ever been there before? Like they didn't turn out or they're part of the ministry, but they, they weren't that guy that you thought they would be. And you're disappointed with them. What does Paul do? He chose to change his perspective. And he began to see people as how God saw them. That he's, I'm not going to see people based upon my own expectations. I'm going to look at people based upon how God sees them. Okay, now we're going to jump back into verse 5. Okay, so we come to the end of the book of Philippians. Not the great nation of Philippines which is a great nation, Philippians. So we're jumping back in there. We're going to verse 5. And the reason why I did this, the reason why I kind of put this out of order, is because not only is this next passage that I'm going to share with you, not only is it the heart of chapter 2, but this next passage that I'm going to share with you is the heart of the entire letter to the church of Philippi. It's the heart. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he orders his whole letter around this passage. It is the heart, it is the key to understanding to unlocking what the Apostle Paul is trying to say here. And he says in verse 5, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Isn't that, good, isn't that good advice? Who wants to have the same attitude as Jesus? Who wants to have the same mind of Jesus? What will Jesus do in every situation? Is that cool to have? Now the Apostle Paul then goes into a poem. He ins- so it's a poem in here. So he writes this letter and he, and he puts in a poem. This is what it means to have the mind of Christ. This is what it means to have the attitude of Jesus. It means to change your viewpoint. It means to change your perspective. And how do you do that? It's by having the same mind as Christ. And he gets into this poem, and, 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 the, and it's the gospel story. And the poem starts off like this, verse 6. Though he was God... He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. See, unlike Adam, if you're familiar with the story in Genesis, Adam and Eve, unlike Adam who tried to seize equality with God and decide to rule on his own term, don't we do that for ourselves? That we want to rule on our own terms? No one's going to tell me what to do. You're not going to tell me how to live, and certainly not God. I'm going to decide for myself what is good and right in my own eyes. But Jesus chose not to exploit his own equal status for his self-advantage. This is what it means to have the mind of Christ. This is what it means to have the same attitude of Jesus. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. Yeah, Jesus didn't stop being divine, but he chose to give up his privileges. The Greek word here for slave is the word doulos. It's the word bondservant. It's the word slave. It means someone without authority. Jesus becomes a doulos. He gives up his divine status, and he became a servant to all. So what does it mean to have the same attitude of Christ? Sounds good. I want the same attitude of Christ. What, what, What? Be a slave? What, give up my own, what, do you know who I am? Do, do you know the gifts that I have? 
what, you mean to give that up and to serve? Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He is the king of heaven. But now he is in the form of a human, fully divine, but not clinging to it, and fully human. When he, then he goes on, when he appeared in human form, which is an interesting flip of Genesis, God creates humanity in his his own image, but now he is made in the image of humanity. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus came to serve us. How How did Jesus come to serve us? Through death. His death means something. It accomplishes something for us. He died so that we may benefit. He died so that we may live. The cross was the ultimate in humility. It is heaping public shame on top of physical torture. You cannot get any lower. Jesus went from the highest heights to the lowest of low. What does it mean? They have the same attitude of Christ. Then Paul goes on to verse 9. Therefore, I just love saying that. Therefore, whenever you, you hear the word therefore, you know what it means? It means pay attention. Because this is what I really mean. You just heard this part of my poem? Well, therefore, you need to pay attention because this is what that all means. This is it coming together. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of the highest honor. And I'm like, whoa. You know what that means? It means that God is fully glorified through the act of what? Of being the son of God? Is he fully glorified then? By being, oh, he's divine, he is God, and he is God in, in, in human form. That's why he should be glorified? No, God is most fully glorified through the act of being a doulos. God is most fully glorified by serving us. What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? What does it mean to have the attitude of Christ? If you want to be glorified, it's about serving one another. Without any privileges, without any, well, you know, I'm going to invite you over for dinner so that you need to invite us next for dinner. That's how it works, right? Oh, you, gave me, you gave me a gift, I'm going to give you a gift. No, no, I'm not expecting anything in return. You will think that God will be most glorified by being up there, away from us, not, not mingling with us, not mingling and being tainted by us, but to be separate from us. Because if, if he mingled with us, then we're gonna be, he's going to be tainted by us. We will think, that's God, you need to be away from us. You need to be unapproachable. But God says to us, no. The most glorious thing that I can do is to be humble, to be a servant of all. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of the highest honor and gave him the name, I love this, and gave him the name above all other names. So God exalts Jesus and gave him the name that's above every name. Did you know in the Old Testament, God's name is a big deal. It's a big deal. Yahweh, the divine name of God. It was holy. Yahweh. That was a big deal. Jews came to believe that it was risky and unwise to even utter 
the name Yahweh and feel violating the third commandment. In fact, in the, in, in the Torah, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, wherever you saw the word Yahweh, they were replaceable with Lord in capital letters, L-O-R-D, because the Yahweh was so sacred. It was a big deal, because that name is above every name. So when Jesus is given the name above every name, the name of Jesus is now equal to Yahweh. And he gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you know that that is a direct quotation from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23? You know what that quotation is about? That's describing the whole universe worshiping this name. Now, all of a sudden, who's this name? It's Jesus. This, this Isaiah 43 verse 2, it was talking about Jesus, that the entire universe is worshiping to Jesus and, and submitting to his sovereignty. Now, God has highly exalted Jesus as the king of all, bestowing upon him the name that is above all names, so that all creation should recognize that Jesus the Messiah is Lord. This is who Jesus is and more. I love this because the Bible offers us an example of how we should live, who we should imitate, to serve, to love, to be humble, to be real. We have to be careful that what we once held sacred has not become ordinary. This is what it means to have the mind of Christ. This is what it means to have the attitude of Jesus. Has your relationship with Jesus become ordinary? See, when it becomes ordinary, that's when compromise begins to seep in. Right? You come to church and you're like, oh, I love God. I just want to serve. I just want to serve Him. I love Him. I love Him with all my heart. God, use me, use me, use me. This is what we cry, right? Use me. Use me however you want. Then sometime later, you go from God, use me to, I feel so used. How does it happen? Oh, you know, they treat me like a slave. Because what we once held as sacred has become ordinary. And when Jesus becomes ordinary in your life, all of a sudden, the things that we said, oh no, I'm, I'm giving up on that, I'm stopping this. But when, we, when Jesus becomes ordinary in our life, all of a sudden, like, oh, that's okay. Compromise seeps in. And we find ourselves in a place where now we're resentful. We're resentful what Jesus has done in our lives. Your devotion to God is measured by what you do for people. Love God and love people. See, when we get to the place where I feel like a slave in church, it's because, we, because now our relationship with God has become ordinary. But when we change our perspective and we begin to have the same mindset as Jesus, the same mindset the same attitude as Christ. Remember what Jesus said? He said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Oh, wow, that's pretty big. But he's, he's not finished there. He goes on to say, and whoever wants to be first must be your doulos, must be your slave. Whoa, whoa, mean even lower than a servant? And when we begin to, to change our perspective, 
then we begin to say, that's all I am. I'm a doulos. I'm a slave for Jesus Christ. You know what my first role here was in this church? The first thing that, my first role, and I've shared this a couple of times, like we moved into this building about 2006, this warehouse (laughs) that we turned into a church, and then we had the opening in 2007. My job, my first job here in church was to open and close that back door there. That was my job. Ants, uh, we've got a really important job for you. You've got to open and close the door when people need to go through. I was going, and this, this is what I said, Wow, really? Oh my goodness. What? I said, what a privilege. I've got a privilege. I've got a privileged position of opening and closing the door. So people, and you know, I became the, the best door and uh, opener and closer there ever was. I want to be the, because for me, this, I'm in the house of God and I want to serve. I, I was so good at it that they promoted me. I became the chairman of the church overnight. I said, because Ants is so good at this, we, we want to make you the chairman. I said, whoa, chairman, that's a, that's a high position. What do you want me to do? Okay, we want you to pack away all these chairs. <laughs> then I want you to set it back up again. I was like, and you know what, to be honest, I was like, oh my goodness. For me, it was a privilege to do this because, you know, I knew that when I packed away these chairs that on a Tuesday morning, we're going to have mums in our community coming with their, with their bubs and they've had a, a hard week, and now they're going to come to an environment where they can bring the kids to a safe environment for them. And I was like, well, what an opportunity I got to serve by packing away these chairs. And then when it's time for me to reset the chairs up, I was thinking, oh my goodness, what an opportunity it is for me to, sh- to set the chairs up. I'm going to have people coming and sitting on these chairs, and, and they're going to have a catalyst for change in their life, and God's going to touch them right where they are. And I get to be part of that because I set up every single chair in this room. What does it mean to be a doulos? It means change your perspective. You know, and... Uh, <laughs> And you know, what my, you know what my favorite thing to do here, even to this day? Set the chairs up. Oh, I'm a pastor. I'm the pastor now. That's beneath me. If I ever get to that place, then it's time for me to hang, hang up my pastor's cape, or whatever that is. Hat. Oh, there you go. Putting that back on because now I've got to. I don't want to get to that place. What I once held as sacred, I do not want to become ordinary. That every part, every time I serve is to give glory to God. I do not want to become ordinary in my life. I do not want my relationship with my wife to become ordinary. Because there was a time in my life where my marriage became ordinary. When I was the youth pastor, when you're you're youth, you're the cool guy. And then when I was no longer cool anymore, they made me the senior pastor. You're too old. You're no longer cool anymore. You're the, you can be the senior guy. Well, I remember being the youth pastor. Man, I just put everything in. I'm serving God. I'm, I'm, I'm helping all the young people. I'm, I'm doing all I can. I'm just giving everything that I am. But I wasn't giving all that I am in my marriage. Because no, God first. God first. Everything else second. And that, that's, that's, that's good. Bible talks about that. But what I don't realize, the best way for me to put God first is by putting my wife first. That my number one ministry is not youth ministry, but it's my marriage ministry. It's my family ministry. And you know, when, when God began to reveal that to me, I said, oh my goodness, what a fool I am. I've, what, has, what was supposed to be sacred had become ordinary. And I began to change the way I thought. And I started changing the way that I prayed. I stopped praying, Lord, I just pray for my wife that she's more understanding. She's, she's more patient, Lord. 
I really pray. I changed the way I pray to, Lord, help me be the, to love my wife like I've never loved her before. Rather than seeing her as a problem, I saw the problem was with me, with my perspective, my attitude. Lord, help, help me love my wife like she's never been loved before. Lord, help me be the best husband that she's ever had, that she will ever have, and never have any other <laughs> after. Because of the way that I'm going, it might change. Help me be the best father that my children can ever have. It changed, and rather than seeing everyone else as a problem, I saw actually it's right here. Because all I am is a doulos. We have to be careful that what we once held as sacred has become ordinary. If you're married in here, man, your marriage needs to be sacred. Because when it becomes ordinary, trouble comes. Your relationship with God remains sacred. Because when it comes ordinary, compromise comes. We have to be careful that what we once held as sacred has not become ordinary. Come on, church, let us pray.